This is Market Currents from Northern Trust, where we explore facts, patterns, and expert opinions to answer today's most difficult market questions. Welcome and thanks for joining Market Currents. I'm Katie Nixon, the Chief Investment Officer for Northern Trust Wealth Management, and I'm happy to be the host for today's important discussion on a topic that has received a lot of attention recently. That's the global semiconductor shortage. Now, as the U.S. economy continues to open up and states are relaxing COVID mitigation measures, we're really seeing a ramp up in economic growth. Now, the pent-up demand is real, and the demand surge has overwhelmed supply in some cases, particularly where the supply has struggled to come back online due to some logistical challenges, as well as shortages of key inputs, including labor. This mismatch has been made even more acute due to a very specific issue related to semiconductors. Quick reminder, semiconductors are tiny silicon wafers or chips that are critical components in so many products that we all buy. Everything from our smartphones to the cars we drive and even our washing machines. The shortage of these chips has wreaked a bit of havoc, causing a manufacturing slowdown across industries just at the time that we're seeing this demand surge. Now, not surprisingly, for those that have access to these chips, prices are rising, so there's even an inflation component to the story. Now, at the same time, and under the umbrella of lessons learned from COVID, there's a growing concern that we're too dependent on foreign manufacturers for this critical component. And this has led to a move to remediate this problem by bringing some manufacturing back onshore to the U.S. But this is going to take time. So the key question is, how long will this problem last? And in the meantime, are we looking at a period of much higher prices for goods that require these semiconductors? As we know, it's a multidimensional and complex problem, which is why I'm so delighted to welcome Deborah Cook to the discussion. Now, Deb is a senior analyst at Northern Trust who covers tech and tech-adjacent sectors for us. And let's dive right in. Thanks, Katie. So let's start with a little bit of framing and maybe laying the foundation here. Can you tell us about the semiconductor industry and its role in the technology ecosystem? So who are the key players? Where are these chips manufactured? Absolutely. Semiconductors are the foundational building blocks of technology and a key driver of the historic price deflation in the computer industry, thanks to Moore's Law, which basically states that the number of transistors in a semiconductor can double every two years at half the cost. The evolution of Moore's Law has allowed the power of mainframe computers in the 1960s, which you know were really the beginning of modern business IT, to be surpassed by the iPhone today. Over the last few decades, the manufacturing of semiconductors has shifted to Asia, driven by a few factors. First came the rise of the fabless, not fabulous, but fabless semiconductor companies who design proprietary chips but use third-party foundries to manufacture them instead of building fabs of their own. Taiwan Semiconductor emerged as the largest global foundry with customers including Apple, Nvidia, Qualcomm, and Cisco. Samsung is the second largest foundry. The only foundry that's based in the U.S. is called Global Foundries, uh, and they're pretty much a specialty manufacturer of semiconductors, although Intel has announced its plans to launch foundry services over the next couple of years. Years. Another factor of the Asian dominance was the emergence of ARM, which is a UK-based company that licenses semiconductor design cores, which allowed non-semiconductor companies like Apple and Cisco to build proprietary silicon and then use foundries for their manufacturing. Apple, Qualcomm, Microsoft are all ARM licensees. The other factor to consider is that it has become more difficult and expensive to make leading edge semiconductors, which are mainly used today in the communications and computing end markets. In 2001, there were 30 companies manufacturing leading edge semiconductors, and today there are three, TSM, Samsung, 
and Intel. In 1990, the U.S. accounted for 37% of global semiconductor manufacturing, and today it's down to 12%, with 79% of production in Asia, mostly in Taiwan and South Korea. In contrast, U.S. chip companies have nearly 50% of the global semiconductor market share. Of the U.S.-based semi-companies, 44% of their manufacturing capacity is located in the U.S., followed by Singapore, Taiwan, Europe, and Japan. The fact is that China is currently not a big factor in the semiconductor industry, accounting for just 5% of semis market share and 5% of production capacity. The country has made becoming a leader in semiconductors a national priority and is investing billions of dollars to achieve that leadership. So that's kind of a snapshot of, of where we're at in the industry today. But it's pretty clear that the contours of this market have been changing for quite a while. But what's so different about this time? How did we get where we are today with this global chip shortage? Well, it was sort of a series of unfortunate events, I think. Heading into 2020, we were coming off of a cyclical downturn for semis with industry sales down 12% in 2019. This was following a couple of years of double-digit growth driven by the growth in smartphones, the Windows 10 PC upgrade cycle, and increasing semi content in both the auto and industrial end markets. After the 2019 downturn, inventories in auto and industrial were also lower than normal coming into 2020. With the pandemic, while most auto and industrial companies reduced production, we saw a huge uptick in demand for mobile devices for work and learn from home, and also the first big year for 5G-enabled handsets. As the economy and also in the auto and industrial industries, as the production started to rebound, inventories were nearly depleted. These markets make up only 12 to 13 percent each of the semiconductor industry, while communications and computing make up about 30 percent each. So the scale is a disadvantage when it comes to allocating capacity. Auto and industrial companies mostly use chips made on trailing edge manufacturing processes where there is no greenfield capacity being built. So that's kind of the, the lead into what happened this year and why we're in the position that we're in today. Well, Deb, I mean, there are a lot of challenges and it's really clear to me in, in semis, but really more broadly that it's a lot easier to sort of shut off manufacturing than it is to flip the switch back on. How long do you think it's gonna to take to bring supply back online to meet the expected demand? Yeah, it's probably going to take for sure the, the rest of 2021 and into 2022. The U.S. government and the DOD have both realized that U.S. companies, especially the fabless companies, are very dependent on Taiwan Semi, which currently does not have a fab in the U.S., but is building its first fab in Arizona for production in 2024. Samsung has a fab in Austin, Texas, and is also building another fab in the U.S., and Intel has committed to building two new fabs in the U.S., but it does take a minimum of two years to build a fab, so this effort to build more leading edge capacity is not going to fix the current supply shortage at all. And like I said, it's hitting the hardest in the trailing edge capacity where no one's really adding anything new now. The government has also realized the implication of, of China investing billions to become a leader in semiconductor technology and has increased the usage of export control licenses of US-based IP, which has basically cut off Huawei uh, from buying or manufacturing leading edge semis and also cut off exports to wafer fab it seems that this has laid bare some longer term strategic issues. And I noted that there is growing pressure now to move manufacturing back to the U.S. Can you talk to us about what's involved in that decision and how long that will take? 
again, it takes a minimum of a couple of years to, to build a fab. And there's a bigger problem around the problem instead of just building a fab. It's also the entire supply chain that surrounds these products. Apple has most of its supply chain in China. It employs over a million people in hundreds of small companies that all work to produce an iPhone. It's, so Apple has no plans and no intention of relocating any portion of its supply chain to the U.S., although it has moved some pieces to Vietnam and India. We actually spoke with Cisco after their earnings a couple of weeks ago to see if reshoring or nearshoring is possible. And they said that while it was not impossible, it's not anything that they currently have plans to do. The government is looking at some subsidies for semiconductor manufacturers to bring some of that leading edge semiconductor manufacturing capacity back to the U.S. Anywhere from 50 to 150 billion is, is what's been talked about. Money that would help to build the fabs as well as conduct a lot of research here in the U.S. China, of course, being that it's a national priority to become a leader in semiconductors, is throwing billions of dollars at the problem and has increased its investments over the last few years and has plans to increase it even further in the coming years. Our government has realized this issue and, and has become a little bit more antagonistic in relations with China in terms of cutting Huawei off from the supply of advanced semiconductors and cutting off export exports of wafer fab equipment to SMIC, which is China's largest foundry. So we've taken some steps here in this country to, to limit their exposure to U.S.-based semiconductor IP as much as we possibly can. But to get back to the original question, this is something that is going to take a few years before we see the, the fruition of these investments. So Deb, you mentioned sort of up and down the supply chain, some of the issues facing the industry. Is one of the issues access to the actual raw materials that 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 go into to making these chips? And how realistic is it for the U.S. to have reliable access to some of these materials? Yeah, it's as it's you know, the entire stack is the problem. It's not just the chips themselves, and the shortages across the entire industry are, encompass all product categories. And, and many companies have instituted non-cancelable rolling 12-month orders to help limit um, the potential for double ordering. Some of the key chemical substrates are also in in shortage. These are used both in the manufacturing of the chips as well as in the back-end testing processes. Chips made at the trailing edge are probably the most impacted by the capacity shortage, just because there's not as much capacity coming on, but most industry participants, as I mentioned, expect that by middle of 2022, we should start to see some relief there. There's a number of uh, minerals that are used in the manufacturing process for semiconductors, and while a lot of them can't be mined or we don't have access to here in the U.S., there are, there are some efforts underway to, to work with allies to help relieve some of the reliance that, that the entire industry has on China, which again produces most of those minerals for the process. Well, it sounds like there will be some uh, relief on the supply side over the next year or two. And in the meantime, we see just this robust demand on the demand side as everything around our homes and that we interact with on a daily basis becomes intelligent. Can you talk to us about what you see on the demand side going forward? Sure. Historically, semis have grown about two to three times, two to three points above GDP. We think that in the future, you might see that growth rate accelerate just based on all the secular drivers that are driving demand today. For example, 5G, artificial intelligence, machine learning, IoT, and also automated driving assistance systems. For example, a 5G radio antenna uses four times more semiconductor content than a 4G antenna. The creation of data is also accelerated 
accelerating and the amount of data generated by machines surpassed the data generated by humans a couple of years ago. And that's just growing at an exponential rate. Semiconductor content in consumer and industrial products is increasing as they become smarter, more connected and more secure. Auto semi-content is set to more than double by 2025 and then double again on the way to fully autonomous driving over the next decade. Factory floors are being rebuilt with more sensors and robotics for increased automation and data capture to aid in the planning and decision-making process. The PC and mobility eras drove semiconductor industry revenue to 466 billion in 2020 and industry experts are projecting that the AI era, as they're calling it, will result in nearly 1 trillion in semiconductor industry sales by 20, 2030. So we see the growth rate of semiconductors, uh, as I mentioned, going from two to three points above GDP to maybe as much as three to five points above GDP for the next several years. Deb, another thing that we've heard a lot about in terms of what trends COVID has accelerated, companies are going through what they're calling digital transformations. Can you talk to us about what this really means and what's driving it? Sure. The pandemic made the benefits of being a digital company very visible to everyone, and we think there are several outcomes from this. The key ingredient for digital transformation is the shift away from on-premise data centers to cloud computing. The first priority in digital transformation seems to be the direct connection with your customers for, that you can reach them on every screen with personalized services. This requires new front office applications like Salesforce.com and also a backend data model that gives companies a single 360 degree view of the consumer. So that's a lot of investing on the applications front. Secondly, we see small and local companies becoming digital right from the start with the help of free tools, advertising and e-commerce platforms, on both, which can both be found on Facebook and Google platforms. Third, the building out of the digital edge is kind of the next big thing that's coming over the next few years. This will be cloud-enabled 5G networks and artificial intelligence and machine learning, which will drive new use cases, including telemedicine, which we've already seen the start of during the pandemic, patient monitoring, personalized drugs and healthcare, smarter appliances and smarter equipment, more automation and robotics in factories, autonomous driving, robo-taxis, and more working and learning from anywhere, which could uh, ultimately reconfigure the demographics of the country. Well, Deb, it sounds like technology is going to have tentacles even more broadly and deeply into everything we do. So although this isn't specifically on the topic of semis, I cannot resist the urge to ask you just about these broader tech issues. And, and I guess a concern that investors have right now is on potential regulation as they are sort of coming into the, to the forefront. And obviously they've spent a decent amount of time in, in Washington over the last couple of weeks. Can you share your thoughts about the regulatory risk that tech companies are facing? Absolutely. And I guess the answer is that we're still waiting. We're seeing more states actually create their own legislation around privacy, app store economics, content policies, but still nothing at the federal level, even though there's plenty of bipartisan agreement that new digital regulations are required. On the antitrust front, you've got Facebook and Google, which are well into their preparation phase with the FTC and the DOJ respectively, and including the state attorneys generals, which have pretty much all sued them and kind of joined together in, in lawsuits with the government. Trials are probably going to be happening in 2022. Amazon was recently sued by the DC attorney general, but so far the agencies remain in the informal investigation stage for both Amazon and Apple. 
The EU remains very active pursuing large tech, but outcomes have focused on fines and behavioral changes without much of an impact on overall market share. The courts will ultimately make the decision around the antitrust cases, and we think new privacy and content regulations could be more detrimental to smaller market players versus the larger platforms over time. Well, it will be something that we will be watching very closely, and I look forward to having a follow-up conversation with you as these things evolve over time. I do think, though, that you've outlined the challenges really well in the semiconductor industry, but also really the opportunities for companies, not just in this industry, but in broader tech. And the trends that you outlined, although we have near-term challenges, they have the power to drive broad economic growth really through the productivity channel, which is so key. And I love your conversation about the cloud and how it kind of democratizes the economic playing field for so many, and as it comes down to GDP growth being a simple calculation, it's the sum of growth in the working age population and growth in productivity. And we've been really through a period of very low productivity growth and also low growth in working age population. And that's why we came out of a long period of growth post the global financial crisis with a slow growth trajectory. Now we know demographics to a large degree is destiny and we can see, we can forecast and, and look at the numbers that the working age population growth is going to remain low. So we have to rely on productivity to drive economic growth. Now at the same time, productivity also allows for some wage inflation without overall consumer price inflation. And that's a good thing. So the key is keeping unit labor costs low. And again, this relies on advances in productivity. I think what we heard today provides an optimistic outlook on that score, and really it supports our premise that inflation is ultimately going to remain very well contained. I want to thank everyone for joining us today, and a big thank you to Deb for sharing her insights. Thank you, Katie. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Subscribe to Market Currents from your favorite podcast app to be automatically notified of new episodes. This audio podcast is being provided for informational and educational purposes only and is not meant to be taken as investment advice or a recommendation of any specific investment product or strategy. The information does not take your financial situation, investment objective, or risk tolerance into consideration. Listeners, including professionals, should under no circumstances rely upon this information as a substitute for their own research or for obtaining specific legal, investment, accounting, or tax advice from their own counsel.